training and you took over. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> do you want me to, <laughs> to try and fudge it up again? <laughs> no. We still, I think this is still the bit that we, we struggle with. From what I can... Yeah, yeah. I know. It's, <laughs> it's so annoying how, like, this is episode four and we're still crying over the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Even More Eyes. The nostalgia hits differently. And we have now come up to date with the Disney princesses. I'm James. And I'm Imo. And yeah, I can't believe we've got this far. I can't believe how many Disney princess movies we have watched <laughs> as two 30-year-old men. That is fucking ridiculous. <laughs> I, I did have that the other day, actually. I was telling a few people about this this podcast. And uh, they just said, is that what you watch? You just watch Disney princesses. Yeah. Like, no, but we're looking at it in this particular sense and blah, blah, blah. But they don't believe me. Yeah, I know. So, Emo, <laughs> uh, what films are we covering today? Okay, so we are in the very late franchise, which is basically the contemporary sets. We're looking at Brave, Frozen, and Moana, which are the last three Disney princess movies that actually center on four princesses. So much like the second episode, we are centering on four princesses again. For this set of movies we can't really talk about it in a sort of nostalgic sense even though brave is from 2012 so that's close to 10 years ago but as at 2012 i was like 22 years old i do not see myself as a child at that age so the likelihood that my viewpoint would have shifted dramatically between then and now is a lot thinner mm-hmm. but it's still interesting to see how my perspective shifts when I'm watching the movie for the express purpose of actually talking about it later. That still gives some validity to the process that we are going to be doing today. Yeah, because much the same, actually. When I was thinking about, okay, how do I remember this? In, it was in my early 20s. Um, yeah. Uh, trying to pretend, of course, I didn't actually watch Disney films, but I was thinking, no, no, you went to see Up, you went to see uh, Wally, <laughs> you went to see all these other films. Yeah. So you didn't actually go to the cinema, but yeah, it's exactly the same. However, yeah. I would say that with a couple of them at least, I probably was being a bit more dismissive and yeah. not really watching properly rather than where I'm now. Shall we start with Brave from 2012? Yeah. So what do you yeah. what do you initially remember about this one anymore? Okay, first of all, she was a ginger princess. Mm-hmm. And this may just be me being slightly inappropriate on this podcast, but I have a thing for gingers. So there was a ginger princess and I was living. <laughs> but um, I was, I really, really liked the character of Merida. I thought she was a very headstrong, progressive princess who sort of like stood up for herself and didn't take anyone's shit. The Scottish accent was also doing something for me, but I think I've already talked about my <laughs> fetishes enough That's for, as one, far as we're going for on one. This podcast. Uh, <laughs> That's as far as we're going on this particular <laughs> podcast. <laughs> but like, okay, first of all, beyond the fact that she was ginger, mm-hmm. it was a very interesting story in the sense that this is a story about Merida. Mm-hmm. And I enjoyed that for once. I mean... And this is something I thought about at the time, which is why it's weird to talk about it now as though my viewpoints are very different. Disney sort of introduced that same trope that had existed for most of the other princess royalty, especially from the classical era. Um, We're talking about people like Cinderella, Aurora and the like, where there was some man that was um, set aside for them to marry and upended that cart completely because, well... Merida decided that she was just not doing it, that she wasn't ready. So for once, there was actually a very obvious, explicit conversation outside of what happened with Sleeping Beauty about how prepared 
a princess is to take on those princess-like duties. And she said she wasn't doing it and she didn't do it. So I kind of respected the fact that Disney was very front and center that this princess has the complete right to choose and is exhibiting some sort of very explicit acknowledgement of the fact that these princess duties are not always aligned to what a princess might want. You know, there has always been this way of selling princesshood as this ultimate aspiration. But here we have a princess who doesn't want to do it. And I liked that. That was very refreshing for me. That's really what I can remember about that film. How about you? Yeah, quite similar. I think that this was the first Disney Pixar film. I was very conscious of the fact it had a young woman uh, as the protagonist. And it seemed to me probably more so than Tangled at that time. That yeah. This was, a, like you said, an explicit critique of those previous Disney princess films. So yeah, uh, but that was something I hadn't at that time really seen before. Going yeah. into it and being a Disney Pixar fan as well as a Disney fan, he thought it was something quite distinctive for the franchise of films. So how about yeah. now then? So where are we with Merida today? Considering the fact that I was watching it with the eye of like looking out for particular troops, mm. especially as we're doing this comparative retrospective with all the other Disney movies that have existed up to date. The first thing that I thought to myself when I was watching it was, okay, this looks like Brother Bear with a Disney princess in it. <laughs> and I don't know if anyone has seen that movie, uh, Brother Bear, but it seemed almost like, well, the whole thing about a person being transformed into a bear and in the course of being a bear, having a much closer relationship with their um, humanity and all that jazz, I think that true came through. Um, but outside of that, there was this whole thing about the parents who just don't listen thing that i was kind of tired of because i get that disney always does that thing where it's like oh your parents know the best for you like the first instance of that was with ariel and her dad and his overbearing nature and the parents weren't exactly that way because it was mostly the mother that was doing that and the dad was supposed to be kind of laid back mm -hmm. but even the moment the mother was removed from the scene the dad kind of automatically took that role on mm -hmm. Because when the mother was transformed into a bear and she kept trying to say that mom, it just felt like he wasn't listening yeah. at all. And I was like, what's wrong with you? Why would she just be saying that a bear is your wife? You should at least listen to her. But I kind of get that there was the whole thing with the PTSD that he had about bears or something from, yeah, from what happened at the beginning of the, the, beginning of the movie. Yeah. So I kind of understand why he would have been somewhat irrational at that point. One of the major themes that I thought was kind of interesting from this movie, and I think it cuts through into the next ones, was that most times Disney movies have like a protagonist and uh, the antagonist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in Brave, while there was an antagonist, which was Mordu, the bear, he was essentially out of frame for the majority of that film yes. until they went into the forest. Yeah. So it's kind of like they had to go find him and bring him into the picture to be the antagonist. I would say like the major issue that the film was actually trying to overcome was the one of Merida's willingness to do what her parents wanted of her and the relationship that she had fractured with her mother. Yes, yeah. And I think that was very different from most of the other Disney movies so far because we had something kind of similar-ish to that in Mulan. But most of the time, there's always been this outside antagonist that is the main issue that the princess is trying to overcome as the film progresses. And what was kind of interesting about this one was, and I think this is something we will see again in the further down films, is that the main problem was actually sat within that household. Mm. It wasn't from the outside. And I thought that that was really, really different. And that was very interesting. And I thought it also marked a sort of turning point again within Disney where it stops seeking its issues outside mm -hmm. 
and focuses on the relationships and the dynamics that exist between the actual central characters and the supporting characters. And that's what I ended up just taking from this, really. Yeah. Because in the end, what fixed the problem was repairing the relationship with her mother. It wasn't defeating the bear. Yes, yeah. And that's, I think, the thing that struck me probably when I watched it around about when it came out, but I think more so now, was in taking the fairy tale model and princess model as their inspiration, they tackled the one relationship that has really been relegated in these films, which is the mother and the daughter. Because even if we go back and look at Mulan, where the mother's... It's always the father and the daughter. Yeah, exactly. The mother's either dead or she's in the background. So Sleeping Beauty's mother, nothing there. It's same with Rapunzel. Or, of course, like we've talked about with various of these films, is the use of the stepmother. And like when we looked at Tangled, it's a dysfunctional relationship. But they've never really fleshed out a complicated relationship, but then also a loving relationship between a mother and a daughter. Like you were saying, the forces of antagonism within the film are found within these characters. And as much as I think Merida's defined by her defiance... But yet that independence isn't tempered by anything. But on the other hand, you've got Eleanor, the queen. She's been defined by being a queen. She's abdicated a lot of her own independence and sees her life as that particular role. And I found it quite funny that when she became the bear, it's the total antithesis of what she mm. is. And and that's what's so funny about watching yeah. characters. Obviously, she tries to carry on in a very genteel exactly. know, posture and everything. Yeah. And I love that scene where clearly she hasn't been out uh, of the castle for decades and doesn't know how yeah. to survive in the wild. So Merida has to show her. And thus you bring yeah. the unity the film then reflects on as a plot point, you know, mend the bond that was broken. Becomes actually pride, about, yeah. Yeah, about moving these two characters much closer together and also yeah. taking, therefore, the extremes of these positions. It's not that Merida yeah. becomes the perfect princess and it's not that the mother... Yeah just goes well you could just do whatever you want it's not like at the end of yeah. little mermaid where he just chucks her and he's like yeah just go and be exactly go and be with the humans that cook our brethren yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and butcher us still and all the rest of it which is absolutely true yeah. um <laughs> based on what the film shows us she's still the queen she's a bit looser she understands a bit yeah more. and yeah i think it shows the real difficulties complexities of these characters The only other thing I guess I wanted to flesh out a little bit was because we talked about this, especially going way back, what the essential Disney values are. And obviously we talked a lot about dreaming and wishing and the role of magic. I think it's interesting in this film, there is a lot of discussion about fate. There's an idea of the sprites leading the way to a person's Mm. destiny. This is another kind of thread that runs through these films. I mean, magic plays a problematic role in this film more than anything else. But also it it doesn't solve problems. And the idea that you aren't predetermined to something is very much held within the the value framework of this franchise. It's surprising how far Disney have moved away from that now when Mm. we come to, to these sets of films. Yeah. The other thing I was going to talk about for me, and this is something that I will... I keep saying this over and over, but it's something that I will revisit when it comes further down is 
the representation of men somehow in this particular movie was eh because, because it's like <laughs> but because it, mm. they weren't really helping does that make sense yes yeah, like, yeah yeah like the men weren't really helping anything they just sort of existed almost as either obstacles or comic relief yes and i wasn't sure how to feel about that yeah because i was like okay cool I get that she is headstrong and she is... I think there was something about her being a sort of a feminist icon when the film came out because she was the first Disney princess that just completely threw out the entire premise of ending up with a prince. Like she literally actively resisted it. So she was really that strong and independent black woman who don't need no man. But even if she was, right, like the men in the story weren't even the people you would want to need. Yes, yeah. None of the men were particularly helpful to the plot. No, no, no quite the opposite there's a few things to say to that regardless of how ridiculous and stupid and prone to reaction these men were they were still allowed to lead their clans it's still about women being betrothed to these men and so perhaps you could argue you know i guess it's stretching it a bit but you could argue it's a look at male privilege that it doesn't matter how inept you are or how mediocre or even childish and prone to being hysterical that you're still allowed to lead the land and set the traditions and so on. The only thing that counters that slightly that made me chuckle is the fact that whenever Eleanor comes into a scene with all these warring men, they all kind of shut up and be quiet. And Merida has aspects of that as well. Though I do find it great that she sort of also fuses her father's stuff in it because in that scene where she finally addresses all the lords and you're thinking oh no it's going to be the same thing as the mum like oh she's learned the Mm. posture but actually she goes no shut it and you're like oh yeah so she's brought you know (laughs) stuff from the dad the last thing i would say is that to put a male character a bit like eugene who's still like i think you said in the last episode a male or a prince-like character can still play a really important role in a story. I think what was quite nice is that they just didn't bother going down that road at all. They didn't lose the focus of the story, which was her relationship with her mother. And I think trying to shoehorn someone in there, whether it was one of the young princes or one of the suitors or whatever, Mm. I think that would have taken something away from Merida herself. And for God's sake, I mean, they waited long enough, right, to be... Uh, (laughs) stars of their own show (laughs) yeah exactly so i mean yeah like on that level i completely am with you on that Mm. because even when i was thinking about it i was like can i really mount this as a critique because i was just thinking about the representations of the different genders right within the plot the women were supposed to be and even merida herself was a defiance of this trope yes but it was kind of like the women were supposed to be demure and refined and soft-spoken and all that stuff and she wasn't and then but all the men were just very boorish Mm. so it just seemed okay okay where is the man in this plot that is the opposite of this shit yeah and i think the only person who was that was like i think the um the second one of the suitor princes like the big blonde guy but he was funny in the sense that he had such a thick accent that no one could understand mm. anything he was saying. But he kind of reminded me of Poe from Mulan, yeah. you know, that like big, soft uh, spoken yeah. teddy bear like guy who is really strong but isn't um, aggressive. Yeah. But he was the only one who was kind of like that. You had the big 
muscular guy who was a strong M silent type and then everyone else was just ready for a fight. But yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I was just thinking to myself, there is no really sensible positive male representation in this. However, this was about Merida, so let's not get off track. Yeah. There were no positive male role models, boohoo. Absolutely fair. I think it's absolutely fair. Even in the nineties stuff, the male character takes up so much time yeah. it will takes over the plot to the detriment of the actual princess or the protagonist of the story i think my real objection to this film comes for the fact that a scottish actress was not cast in the role of eleanor because it went to emma thompson who is that's not going to casting please english Mm-mm. so I, 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 I'm, let... I'm i'm you know that's what really got me you know i think that emma thompson should have turned down this role to give it to a, all to i'm a saying Scottish is that actor. it was shot in america so let's not get into them with cultural accuracy because that's well, a, that's, that's, that's a, even that's more conversa- outrageous that's a, that's a conversation you don't want to be having <laughs> no right i know so, i know yeah we'll, 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 uh, <laughs> let's again we'll park that one. But yeah, yeah. Uh, okay yeah we'll just like park that one completely to the side yeah. and we just move on to the next one okay so moana no, back to the cultural frozen. representation now this <laughs> Now it's frozen Moana, or it's frozen. It's fucking. Fr- Are you kidding me? Okay, you know what? <laughs> we're just we're just going to cancel everything I just said because I actually just completely threw Frozen out of the bathwater. Um, but see, your okay, your fine. aversion to Frozen is so pathological that you. I swear to God, I just I just I just did not want to touch it. <laughs> but, yeah. So, Frozen. Now, I first think you should first let our listeners to... know why you're so averse to okay, fine. Frozen. So, I am going to be one of the first people to say this very explicitly. I do not like Frozen at all. And the reason I don't like Frozen is because I was forced to watch it five times in a row by my overly excitable cousins who just really wanted to listen to this and let it go song ad infinitum. <laughs> now, you know that thing about kids where it's like you can repeat something multiple times and your brains just don't get tired of it? I was forced to sit there and watch Frozen five times in a row. So even for this podcast that we are recording right now, I did not rewatch it because I cannot go through that experience again. I literally get triggered every time someone starts playing, do you want to build a snowman? I lose it. I black out for like five seconds and then I return to like life. But what I remember about Frozen from the very beginning, when I watched it the first time was, where is the toilet? That thought sat with me the whole time. What crossed my mind was, I don't know what Elsa is supposed to be, but she doesn't have ice powers. Because the number of things that she does in the course of that movie have nothing to do with condensing and freezing water. She basically creates life. She creates Olaf, to begin with, who is a snowman with a sense of humor and an understanding of concepts he has never experienced, like Summer. And then she creates this ice giant to protect herself in the castle. She just creates a castle out of nothing. I was like, okay, so you've gone off into the middle of the wilderness and built a castle for yourself. What do you eat? Where do you sleep? Where do you poop? Where is the toilet? You know, like, like, did you fit a plumbing system into this thing that you just like, what the hell is this? And I just thought to myself that there were so many logistical plot holes in the story that I didn't understand the hype outside of the um, Let It Go song. Anyway. (laughs) honestly like i would get hate for this but i didn't think the song was that great i know we are not discussing the sequels but into the unknown in the sequel i prefer that okay 
I am not a fan, so I'll just leave this in your hands to maybe say something nice. <laughs> I didn't catch this one at the time. There was a lot of hype around it, and I just thought, I'm, I'm not that interested. What then subsequently happened, if you were around drama circles or going to parties with ex-drama students, is that where before Defying Gravity was the song of choice, it became Let It Go, and uh, oh that, that was particularly gracing. But when I did sit down to watch it, I knew The Snow Queen, which this is based on, but it's one I really did like as a as a kid. And so to see where they'd taken say, the witch character and turned her into the protagonist of the story, yeah, I thought it was quite yeah. good. The thing I guess I liked about Let It Go was watching someone who clearly mm. had been trapped up just going wild in, in the wilderness. And... Um, yeah, I appreciated that, but I sort of lost a bit of interest toward the latter half of the film when I watched it the first time. With one exception, the twist toward the end with the antagonist, I actually was blindsided by. I have to admit it, I did not see You were blindsided by it, and I was confused. By hands. Yeah, yeah. because it did not make sense. Oh, no, no. well, no, no, no. I think they, when watching it through again, I think they do set it up in certain ways. I can't say that um, after seeing it the first time, I, I was going to watch it again. So, yeah, that was where I was when I saw it the first time. So where, where are we with this now, considering since starting this podcast? So I would say that there are two things that really stood out to me now within the framework of this podcast. One Another rejection of the instant love trope. Mm. This is the most obvious, yeah. very overt yeah. rejection of the instant love trope where the love is an open door song happens between Anna and Hans. Mm. And then her sister is like, yeah, you literally just met him. Could you not? Because that's what happened with Sleeping Beauty. And we thought it was fine. Yes. And yeah. but, like, but she was like, yeah, no, you don't marry a man you just met. Yeah. Because literally all the princesses before Pocahontas for the most part, married men that they just met. I would say maybe Belle and Jasmine tested them a bit, mm. but everyone from um, Ariel and Pryor, married men that they just met. And the fact that Frozen was just like, yeah, don't do that, was almost like Disney was calling itself out yes. in a very, very explicit yeah. way. So I was just like, explicit. okay... In the most explicit way. And I was like, okay, that is fine. Then the other thing that I thought about was the story ultimately, much like in Brave, the story was actually about the repairing of a familial bond. Yes. Because in Brave, it was between the mother and the daughter. And by Frozen, it was between two sisters. So I think it continued that line of thinking of the enemy isn't always something out there. Now, for Frozen itself... I'm sorry, like the actual enemy was in the background and we were given a fake one. I know that you're going to say that there was some sort of placement for Hans to be the enemy. I'm sorry, I respectfully disagree. Mm -hmm. I think Hans was never the enemy. Nothing about anything he did prior to that point where he goes, you know, with the M Sinister laugh. It doesn't make sense because here is the reality, right? Mm -hmm. If Hans really wanted to take over that kingdom, there was an opportunity that he had very explicitly for someone to kill Elsa and he could have let it happen. He was right there. He didn't need to stop them. What but are you talking about? When they went to the castle mm. to capture Elsa, mm. remember there was a time when I think they were going to shoot her and he stopped them. He could have simply not done that. In fact, that probably would have helped him because if they had killed Elsa, you'd have had a grieving Anna who probably was looking for a shoulder to cry on. He would have showed up and taken over the kingdom. He had a perfect setup already. So I couldn't think of any reason why he stopped them from killing Elsa when that was his agenda from the very beginning. Mm. However, 
the sinister Disney theory is that he didn't. He actually did not want Elsa to die. Mm. And him turning the corner at the end actually is a manifestation of the actual bad guys of the plot. Mm-hmm. And the actual bad guys of the plot are the trolls. <laughs> you can laugh about it, yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah. why does it make more sense? Because in the original Snow Queen, the trolls were not good guys. Mm-hmm. They were not good guys. So you can't tell me that Disney derived a story from that story without acknowledging the fact that the trolls were technically the bad guys. Secondly, the trolls had a different sort of agenda for who is going to end up in the kingdom, which was Kristoff. Getting Kristoff into the castle was more of an agenda for the trolls. Mm. So Hans was actually getting in their way. Yeah. So it makes more sense that they enchanted Hans to be a bad guy so that Anna would dump him, then end up with Kristoff and then give whatever benefits to the trolls. Mm. So as far as I'm concerned, the real bad guys in Frozen were the trolls. It wasn't Hans. Hans was perfectly fine until they enchanted him into an asshole because he wasn't one before yeah, but... and he had no reason to be one before. Yeah, but they, he never meets them. What does that have to do with anything? Well, you said he, they, they enchanted uh, Hans. They never meet him. And we pretend that the trolls' magic is limited by proximity. Mm. the troll's magic is clearly not limited by proximity because previously in the film it's very very obvious that they are fully aware of magical incidents that are happening far outside of their reach mm-hmm. so for me it makes perfect sense that they had something to do with it mm. so i am fully of the view that the trolls are responsible for what happened mm. hans did nothing wrong and it's sad that he had to go but you know <laughs> at least they didn't kill him that's all I am going to say about that. Yeah. The only thing I noticed about the trolls is they play to much of the same fantasy as as Anna has what a relationship is going to be or what love is. Because they do set her and Kristoff uh, up. They practically marry them off. And bear in mind that they've only known each other less than an afternoon as well. So... But they have known Kristoff all their life. No, but they're doing exactly the same thing as Anna expected with the relationship with Hans. The trolls only know that Kristoff has known her for about an afternoon, and yet by the end of their little musical sequence, they've got them both dressed up to get married. And it's only when Anna because they have an agenda. <laughs> yeah, That's my that, point. That, yeah, no, I can see that. I can see that. For me, with hands, I guess yeah, there are some logistical issues there. I think more it was what he represented. He'd been set up at that point to be this real nice guy. Even with villains like Gothel, for instance, who portray mm-hmm. a, a kind face to to Rapunzel. We're aware that she's not a good character. And with Han, the only thing I can point to is at a couple of moments where he becomes too protective of Anna. The behaviour is just a bit too possessive. And other than that, there's not necessarily an indication that he's going to make that particular switch. No, but, and but... Th- there was no reason to believe in it either because... And this is where I'm going to stop you, mm. but you are going to carry on with your points. But this is just me to um, interject. Mm. Remember at the very beginning when they first met... Mm. And then I think he lands in the M River or something. Even after the whole fumbling mess happens and she walks away, even when she's not looking at him, he looks at her with like this wistful smile. So it was very clear that he was somewhat smitten with her even at that time. He didn't have like some sort of like dark smile or something like, oh, ho, 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 I have met my victim. It seemed very genuine, like the whole thing, plus the fact that he was there when Elsa was forbidding their relationship. It was almost like he was fighting for her throughout the film. So I kind of understand the overprotectiveness. But all I'm going to say... That was just yeah, the way I saw it, but anyway. Yeah, but all I was going to say is that I think 
one of the things Disney might be acknowledging is that evil or malign intentions are not always going to come dressed in black and exactly with green skin and yellow eyes and and that's what i quite liked is that sometimes looking beyond appearances and i think the disney prince going way back was a vacuous but virtuous present yes again i can see what you're saying there are some developments here that that don't get to where they wanted to with him in that seat but from a representation a symbolic view i think it's quite interesting that they picked the archetypal prince not a gaston figure who's overtly narcissistic and hyper masculine actually it's the nice guy i mean what i remember thinking is it's very sociopathic but we don't Mm. necessarily have the indicators that really get us to that point and you have a counterpoint in christoph which is quite nice it's not completely the opposite but Christoph is a, he's similar to Eugene, but he's a bit more insecure. That he's grumpy on the outside, but he challenges her a bit. He, he doesn't set out to be in a relationship. Of course, it ends up the same way. That's a whole yeah. other issue with this. They don't end up because married. They're forced together. Yeah, by the trolls. Yeah, yeah. who want to get into the kingdom. <laughs> they need a plant on the inside. Uh, I've said it. The I trolls were the bad guys. I think you've got something against trolls. I think I think there's no. There's sorry, more, the trolls were the bad guys, and that's the end of it. The eye. <laughs> <laughs> There's more to this, like, mm. I suspect absolute foul play because <laughs> it did not make sense to me. But anyway, yeah, um, yeah, like yeah, you yeah. said, it is true that the instant love trope was subverted twice. Mm. The antagonist of the plotline was the protagonist of the plotline. Yes. Yeah. Which was kind of new and different yeah. because like the bad guy was the central character to some degree. Yeah. It's great. But I, I also know, wanted to, to pick up on something that you said in the last episode which was that these films start to try and understand nurture as an influence on the protagonist and the antagonist and the kind of behaviours that emerge from that. Because what came out of this in the beginning of this relationship had been torn apart by, I think, some very misguided, overprotective parents who couldn't mend that trauma themselves because they ended up drowning. You know, Elsa's problem and Anna's problems also emerge from that lack of guidance or taking that guidance too far. Also, I think there's some quite clever things with the scene that with that horrific song at the beginning also sets her up to why she has such delusional ideas about love. Because it's all two-dimensional. Yeah. It's all with those paintings yeah. of romance, which, again, I saw as a kind of critique of Disney with its with the previous Snow White and Sleeping Beauty. I mean, they were, while they didn't go so far, at least from what I can remember, to put those in the background, mm. there were paintings that had similar yeah. aesthetics to uh, the old school Disney. Overall, with Frozen, looking at it again, considering this sort of body of work, I actually quite enjoyed it. I enjoyed the relationship between the two and the fact that once again, like we said about Brave, that it was bringing that kind of relationship to the focus and that's what needed to be addressed. And allowing an antagonist, and and like you said, antagonist, protagonist, anti-hero to be really insecure, but to emerge as something far more self-confident, but yet also realising that she couldn't just stay shut away in a castle with no toilet. I just look, I will say that a thousand times. Every time I was watching it, I was always like, I'm sorry. I don't understand how you think a castle works, but you don't just build it and it works. So what what are you doing? But <laughs> Emo. Anyway. Emo. There's a snowman yeah. who wants True. to be experience alive in summer. summer. Though that also kind of shocked me because I quite liked Olaf. There's just something 
unbelievably funny. They're in the most direst of circumstances and yet he can still make jokes, still think yeah. everything's wonderful. At the end of it, he knows that, that water melts. That I found mm. bizarre because like, he takes her closer to the fire and he starts melting. But he says something like, it's worth melting for you. So he already knew the whole time yeah. like, what it meant. So I'm a bit so like, just like, what is this? <laughs> well, I, the only thing I could think is that it, there's a kind of parody or an or irony to it all. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, like, Comic that's... <laughs> perfectly fair um yeah can i ask you something there, like i said yeah do you want to build a snowman do you want to die <laughs> okay <laughs> <laughs> moving on to the next one moana this is the last one yeah, yeah, this is the last one. When I was watching Moana the first time, mm. I felt like I had been transported to a different world. Mm -hmm. It really felt like I was in a different sort of setting completely that didn't have any of those weirdly Eurocentric features. So a classic example is something like the and proportions of the characters. Mm. Like Moana's proportions are really close to like an actual person. Mm. She looks like she was built for adventure. She looked mm. like she actually had the strength to do a lot of the things that she was doing. Every other Disney princess up to that point still had like the standard, very narrow yeah, waists. Very, you know, Rapunzel. Yeah, yeah. Very dainty, wayfish, yeah. M skinny legend. But Moana looked like she could actually beat you. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, thank you. Mm. When I first watched it, absolutely enjoyed it. Mm. I liked the fact that it had a very different set of concerns. Mm. I liked the songs as well. Mm. I couldn't sing them because I had reached the point in my life where I was no longer memorizing Disney songs and also because Frozen had just ruined Disney songs for me. Let it go. You know. <laughs> yeah. You really want to die. Um, <laughs> So one of the things that I liked about it was that Moana's character was a very reasonable princess. Something that she did that sort of married, let's say, Pocahontas and Merida, was that she was told to take on a particular sort of duties as the next tribal chief, which is another place where it departs because she was going to be chief, not princess. So she was actually going to be the ruler, yeah. basically queen, right, of that kingdom as like the first child. And I think the only child, really. And in as much as she had this thing that was calling her out into the sea, she did ultimately say, you know what, I actually do need to honor my responsibilities and do the thing that I am told to do, mm. which is become chief. And she did sit in that position for a while until she ultimately needed to answer the call to that sort of adventure that she had and put off for her responsibilities when the rot or whatever finally made it to her island yes yeah. so what i liked about that was that we didn't just go with this oh if you are a princess you must always have your way and you must always just do that thing that is calling on to you i would say out of all the princesses she is possibly the most responsible mm -hmm. of all of them and you know she did what she needed to do both times so she took her place as chief when she was required to and she was an adventurer as well when she was required to yeah so she did what she did yeah, to do every yeah. time. And it was always dictated by what she was hoping to do or what she was hoping to achieve rather than just, oh, the sea is calling me and I must get onto a boat and go into blah, blah, blah. Yeah. No, that's not how it works, mm. you know? <laughs> um, and so that's what I thought about Moana the first time I watched it. And that's still what I thought this time. So I guess for me, I'm almost collapsing the two into yeah, one. Yeah. The other thing that really stood out to me was the 
complete subversion of the bad guy, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you really think about Moana critically, the bad guy was the good guy and the person announced to be the bad guy was also the good guy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yes. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. the actual bad guy, that's the person who caused all these problems ended up being the good guy as in the protagonist because Maui, Maui. joined her on the adventure yes. to fix the yeah, problem yeah, yeah, yeah. and then he became the good guy. But even the bad guy that they were going to defeat was the good guy. Yeah, yeah, because it so, was a Tafiti. Because, exactly. So, mm. Tafiti became this lava monster because of what Maui did. Yes. That's the thing I loved about Moana. It completely flipped the script yes. on who the good guy and who the bad guy was. Yeah. And I thought that was very refreshing because it wasn't like this clear-cut, oh, this person is evil mm. and this person mm. is good. Mm. And as long as we destroy the thing that is evil, all is well. Yeah. But the reality is that the person who was bad was also good, but he did the bad thing for good reasons. He really thought as someone who was rejected by humanity and saved by the gods that he was doing a good thing for humanity by giving them the power of creation by stealing it from this other god. But that moral ambivalence was what I absolutely loved about Moana both the first time I watched it and now. The only thing that was different this time was my capacity to compare it to every Disney princess prior. Moana was the first time when you see a princess who is like, I'm explicitly doing this for my people. Mm-hmm. I thought that that was really great. Like I liked Moana. I think she's on my list of most um, iconic yeah. people. Much like the thing we've seen with Disney so far, a lot of lampshade moments, a lot of throwbacks and internal references. Like that time when they're on the boats and Maui says, "Oh, are you a princess?" She's like, "No, I'm not a princess. I'm a chief." And he's like, "Yeah, you have an, an animal sidekick. Yeah, 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 you yeah, are. Yeah. <laughs> You're a princess." So it's kind of like Disney playing with its own tropes. I, I honestly don't really have anything negative to say about Moana. I really did enjoy it, mm. especially in light of every other princess who came before. It was almost refreshing to watch mm. this and be like, oh, thank God, someone who actually has sense. <laughs> For me, there's been a bit of a shift in perspective because when I first saw it, which was about a couple of years ago, I was very, very dismissive of it. I think because the first 10 minutes of the film... It was like, oh, okay, she likes the sea. She's trying to get out from under the responsibilities of being a princess. It was almost like, here's Little Mermaid. I think what got me was when also you had the grandma character. And I was like, oh, here we are, Mm. just around a river bend, you know? (laughs) Yes, exactly. I was like, this is so Pocahontas. Here we go, here we go. Yeah. I did switch off, really, when I watched it the first Mm. time. I didn't quite get Dwayne Johnson's character. What I think I was seeing, which is kind of ironic, is a number of Disney tropes initially. Yeah. And yeah. the ending obviously was was a bit different. There's I think yeah. it almost felt like an actual completion of the Pocahontas story mm. without the romance that she would take on a responsibility with her people. But actually, mm. when I watched it again, much like you did, one, it was this character, very capable. You could see that in how she was interacting with the people, very kind also, very yeah. sort of determined. But also she recognised when she needed to learn something. There was this idea of, I yes. don't know enough, and therefore I need yeah. someone to show me. And and that was what I really exactly. liked between her and Maui mm. was when he taught her to sail. And the other thing yeah. that I thought was brilliant and worked well from both her individual point of view but also the wider conceptual point of view was this idea of I need to find out who I am 
that who I yeah. am is not something which is going to completely strip away tradition or the traditions yes. which were very isolationist and conservative, if you like, of her people, but actually was a return yeah. to the roots of those people which managed to combine. They're both people who look to the horizon and go to the horizon, but they also settle. They're voyagers. But what I like about that yeah. is part of them, it seems to be a nomadic, and part of them also are settlers. It tried to find a justification for lots of these things, well, reasonable ones. Like, why did they yeah. decide to become settlers rather than voyagers? Why did yeah. the dad have such an issue with her going out on the reef? Her, well, they exactly. provide quite a reasonable, if not, you know, okay, yeah. stereotypical, tragic backstory. The thing that stood out for me the most is, once again, to play with the concept of the chosen one, the destined one. And while this wasn't yeah. directed, fortunately, towards your destiny as you're going to get hitched with some guy you met five minutes ago, the thing mm. that stood out was there was an acknowledgement that sometimes things do get really difficult along the road and that, yes. that you have to choose, you have to find your own determination. And that wonderful scene yeah. where the grandmother comes back and she says to her, maybe I'll put too much on you. If you want to go back, that's absolutely fine. I mean, in a sense, not a realistic possibility because of the whole oceans being corrupted by Tafiti uh, or Tafiti being corrupted. Yeah. But yeah, I, I really appreciated that it was about a young woman coming into her own, deciding her own mm. destiny, which, like you said, balanced out the ability to look toward the horizon, but also to have her own aspirations, but also recognize her responsibility. And as I said, the idea of returning to your roots, because oftentimes my worry with these films is that they try and package a particular set of values that are emphasized in the West, you know, obviously where this film is produced and distributed yeah. in the main. Yeah. I know there was some consultation with this film, more than like maybe yeah. one guy uh, or no guys in this in, in, in a conversation with Aladdin. However, that it isn't about saying, okay, well, it's all just the individual. The individual is mm. what matters the most, and you need to, you know, completely shed yourself in a, yeah. a very Western way. You should be the citizen of everywhere. No, it was about acknowledging that you do come from somewhere. But that somewhere may exactly. not be what you actually think it is. And it changes, it morphs over time. And yes, in a sense, the Moana at the end of the film has reclaimed the heritage. Hopefully it'll be mm. a kind of mixture of these currents that you can still yeah. keep changing while at the same time holding on to those things which are quite important. But all of these things, I think, were so wonderfully put within the film. You know, it's a very layered film. There's a lot that yeah. I think is going on. There, there. are so many layers mm. to it. And that's actually what I liked about Moana because I think I could do a full like discussion on just Moana itself because I think, like you said, it's the culmination of so many Disney princess tropes packaged into one but done in a very 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 good way mm. so a classic example is the whole spiritualism aspect that was first visited mostly in like pocahontas with like the grandmother and the guiding spirits oh, yeah. and in the guiding spirit version of pocahontas it was very much like helping you find your way and all that stuff and the like but by the time we got to moana it was a little more of an emphasis of you have to determine what your way is to some degree maybe i have put too much on you but ultimately, this is your decision and this is something you would have to go through and figure out for yourself. And there was a thing about royal responsibilities, which was brought up in Brave with Merida being quite defiant of it. 
And Moana initially had a period of defiance, but she came to understand precisely what was happening very, very quickly. Yeah, yeah. And, because, and made a reasonable because, suggestion. Exactly. So yeah. she got on board with understanding what she needed to do and doing it within the first few minutes of the movie. Mm. So we didn't spend an entire film mm -hmm. waiting on her to just get with the program. Mm. So there were so many little things that you'd see in so many other Disney movies that were brought together quite well in Moana. And it was always done within a particular realm of reason. And so I'm just doing a nice little segue into my bringing together Sorry. these three films yep. and what they mean to me. One of the similarities that I saw in all three of them was the greedy man trope, right? Because in Brave, Mordu became Mordu thanks to his own greed, mm. right? And ultimately became transformed into this bear-like bad guy. And so it was a caution against a particular kind of power-seeking greed. In Frozen, Hans, same thing. His whole 180, which I still think is a lie, but still. The whole thing about him, you know, wanting to take over the kingdom. Is that greedy man trope again? And I think it was also referenced with the Earl of uh, Westington. There was that thing about like the men in here are particularly greedy type people. And by the time you get to Moana, it softens up a bit. But even Maui has a bit of that douchebag. Well, he's a narcissist. Tendency. Exactly. Yeah, at, the beginning at the beginning of the, of, of the plot. Yeah. Exactly. But by the time we get to understand precisely why he ended up with those tendencies and yes. where his narcissism ends up being revealed for what it really is, which is a very strong sense of like insecurity. The second thing was like the women, for the most part, a lot of the relationship that they were building was non-romantic yes. in all yeah, three films. Absolutely. In fact, their main focus was actually familial bonds yeah. because it was brave with Merida and the mother, mm. Moana with both her parents and her grandmother, and then by Anna Elsa was a um, sisterly bond. Yeah. So in the end, they sort of like brought the relationship focus away from the world of romanticism back into the familial territory. In the first two movies, Brave and Frozen, there was some mention of going in that direction of, oh, go find yourself a prince and a suitor, mm. but it was axed almost like yeah, yeah, absolutely. immediately. Slapped down. And absolutely. Exactly, and yeah. we just moved on to dealing with other things. By the time we got to Moana, it was literally not in the plot. Mm. They just, <laughs> yeah, they just yeah. removed <laughs> they just removed it completely yeah. because in Moana, it seemed very obvious that her right to rule was not challenged by whether she had a prince or not. Yes. It made no difference. Yeah. So they just sort of like didn't even touch that at all. And then finally, the other thing I would say that I really saw as like the connecting thread between the three was the blurring of the line between the heroes and the villains. Mm. Because in Brave, all that problem happened because of Merida. Yeah. She caused the problem. Yeah. So she had to fix it. In Frozen, literally Elsa was the problem. She was a central character and she had to like free herself and find herself and come to appreciate and understand and control her powers. She plunged the entire kingdom into eternal winter and it wasn't until she sorted out her issues that everyone else was going to be free of the havoc she was wreaking. Mm. So that was another thing that was kind of interesting that there was that blurred line between who is the real bad guy here. Yes. And the same thing happened again in Moana, as I mentioned with Maui being both the cause and the cure. Yeah for the problem but even further on like with tefiti being represented as the bad guy 
after her heart was stolen and she became that lava monster and then returning to who she was. So I think those three movies sort of did that thing where it was slightly non-traditional in its storytelling where you don't just have this hero that is going off to defeat a villain and then all's well. It's kind of like the hero is the villain. Yes, yeah. And I thought that was a nice departure from the M. Disney formula and that's I think what really made these movies kind of special at least to me. That's one of the reasons why I really did enjoy watching them especially compared to everything that came before because they redid the scripts and I always like it when someone redoes the scripts because I hate being bored so yeah (laughs) yeah I think mostly the same what I noticed about these three films is like you said there was a real move away from romance being the only relationship that you need that to, matters yeah that matters and that you should aspire to so yeah there are other things like you say sisterhood motherhood those relationships should be important and then also the relationship like, even that, like mm. even your love of like your clan your yeah like, yeah 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 your people because that's yeah. what it was for uh, moana yes. it was a familial relationship but it was also just like Communal. a different kind of love was the focus mm. you know but also uh, the relationship sorry. no 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 the relationship with oneself which is often yeah born out of a conflict that we have maybe within ourselves uh, particular flaws particular problems that that cause problems in the world as much as they make yeah. problems for us and I think that was nice to see that like you said I think that's what really showed that antagonist protagonist relationship that these characters really have to grapple with the internal yeah. problems without always seeking external validation like oh that the prince is going to save it or the fairy godmother or whatever I do think there is a consequence I find it interesting that like you said with the princess and the frog really from that moment onwards there are attempts to try and understand where antagonists are coming from or potential antagonists are coming from and we had that with Maui we had a tragic backstory Hans also they provide a justification for his behavior you know he's been overlooked by being in a family with many brothers the, yeah. What I would say the consequences is that for a long time now, there are none of those wonderful villains who are just simply like two dimensional, yeah. passionate about their villainy. <laughs> You know, it's yeah, there's true. there's no charming evil Maleficent or Ursula or whatever. I think that the move away to try and understand villainy or to, as you said, to situate antagonism within the protagonists themselves lead to that Disney villain essentially being extinct now. I mean, it's gone the way yeah. of the same conversations about dreams, these characters take a very active role it's about their capacities it's about their agency so dreaming and wishing is out of the question and then lastly really like where disney has massively changed is that the standards of beauty yes in frozen it really does harken back to the early sort of films in the designs of these characters i think moana like you said it was it was a great example of this there are other body types especially for the female princess there are other ways of being so the disney villain and these concepts basically have become extinct and what's replaced that is a greater concentration as you said on familial bonds or communal bonds trying to find some kind of whatever we want to define it as self-acceptance. And I guess lastly, ideas around 
balance that we have seen for a long time as well. Yeah, films, that yeah, not absolutely. About pursuing either total individual autonomy, nor about being slave to or, or part of some confining society or yes. whatever. Yes. So it, yeah, there's been there has been movement. You'd hope to expect that uh, within a institution that's at least what seventy, eighty years old. It's kind of been a wild ride yeah. <laughs> going through these Disney princesses, honestly, because there were a number of times I wanted to just throw something at my screen. I was like, what are you doing, sis? Like, <laughs> but, but, yeah. but, but, you know, I think it's really, really been interesting. Mm. Very time consuming, yes. but also yeah. very interesting to like go back and look at these things and try to understand where yeah. a lot of these tropes and Disney-fied ideas that we kind of grew up with sort of came from. Yeah. And I think it's a very good place to plug the fact that i mean we've we've basically come to the end of this entire retrospective mm-hmm. but it does give us a nice springboard point for raya and the last, last dragon, dragon because that's going to be on some level a kind of disney hero I'm, I'm not sure if she's going to be a princess necessarily but she is going to be a disney female hero character which arguably these last three um, disney princesses have been so it continues in the tradition slash the footsteps that have been built by mm. these women mm-hmm. and i'm actually looking forward to seeing it because the trailer looked really cool and i think the fact it was giving me mulan vibes mm. but i have no idea which direction they are going to go with it i just hope that they push forward with some of the more progressive storytelling elements that they reached with moana yeah really. but yeah like you yeah. said i think this will be a very different type of film it doesn't necessarily yeah pitch itself forward in in the mold of a frozen or even a brave yes. it seems to be something quite different she seems to be almost sort of ronin style character there's a little hint there that maybe there might be a different kind of relationship that's taking place i don't know if you saw the new official trailer but there's like a baby character in it um, yes, and I yes. wonder if there's gonna, they're playing around with any of that at all about other sorts of relationships. So we, we will see. We will see. We will see. Mm. I mean, I'm actually happily looking forward to it. Yeah. So, um, seeing as you started this one, mm-hmm. I'm going to end this one. So, yeah. thank you so much for listening, and thank you for joining us on this wild ride slash hellscape reviewing Disney princesses. I honestly don't know how to move on from here because i think we just need to sort of like take a breather for like a couple of weeks and detox (laughs) (laughs) as Zemo said coming to the present we're going to have a look at ryan the last dragon and then after that yeah we'll be going back into our childhood again to have a look at some other films and where they stand now stay tuned for that yeah if you want to, um, please like and subscribe. Yep. Uh, share with your friends. <laughs> Are you sure you don't want to build that snowman? Because it is snowing outside. <laughs> yeah, I know. And that's kind of what is really like annoying about the fact that you said <laughs> Just like, I could actually build a snowman. But... Okay. Are we going to... I'm we gonna still triggered. Stop. But anyway. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs>